Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich-Robertson. I'm the CEO of the organization, but I'm also a person living with AI arthritis diseases, primarily axial spondyloarthritis, but we can sprinkle some other things in there too as well. And there's somebody with me actually today who could even verify that complication because I also have my rheumatologist with me, Dr. Kim. Hi, Dr. Kim. Kim? Hi, how are you doing, Tiffany? I'm doing great. How great. are you? I'm well, thank you. <laughs> All things considered. Yes, absolutely. We're going to circle back here and have everyone do an introduction, but I also have Kelly on here, Kelly Conway. Hi, Kelly. Good morning, Tiffany. Hello, Dr. Al, how are you? <laughs> I was like, ooh, Dr. Kim or Dr. Al? I'm going to go with Dr. Al. Or just, or just, or Al. just Al. There's much worse uttered to me. So Dr. Al's going to stick. I have a, I have a feeling. <laughs> I know. I, I think we'll get t-shirts. I know. I, I'm seeing, I'm seeing it happen. So the reason that we are all convening today is we felt it is a very important time to talk about vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm going to date this here. We're in January of 2021. So the vaccine is very new at the time that we are recording this. And as an organization in the trenches alongside people living with these diseases all over the world, we are hearing a lot of questions. We are seeing a lot of conversations. Patients are hearing information from their rheumatologists. It's differing. <laughs> we're all hearing it in these communities we're in, and then that information's being shared. So we felt there's a need for us to come in, clarify some of the questions, and also make sure that we are doing our best as an organization to see what else has been put out there. So I do want to do a shout out to our friends at Creaky Joints, Global Healthy Living Foundation, who we've had on the show for our COVID-19 and AR arthritis series, and they are still doing an amazing job. So they are people for sure to be checking out. And we also just listened to a podcast on COVID-19 and vaccines through the National Psoriasis Foundation that aired a few days ago. So we will do our best as an organization that works to unify all resources in one place. If you want to go to AIarthritis.org backslash COVID-19, we will be updating with more information about resources we're finding in regards to the vaccine that can go along with this conversation. So we are going to jump right in here. Let's do a few introductions here. I'm going to have Dr. L. Kim, I'll put it all together there, <laughs> give a little background other than the fact that you are my awesome rheumatologist. So uh, oh, yay. take it away. Take it away, Dr. <laughs> so Kim. my name is Al. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which we figured I am, I am out. <laughs> I'm an adult rheumatologist on faculty at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. I also founded and co-direct the Lupus Clinic there, which is about 500 patients big, where we engage not only with you know multidisciplinary clinical care, but also research uh, where patients actually help participate and contribute ideas to our research and also strengthen community ties. That's kind of like our core mission. Very recently, over the past year, I've been more and more involved with the rheumatology COVID-19 effort in a variety of methods, most recently vaccines, and that's something we'll be chatting a lot more later in the podcast. Awesome. And Kelly, why don't you say a little bit more about who you are? And okay. Well, I am the co-founder of AI Arthritis. I'm also a patient living with rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia and Graves disease and a few other autoimmune skin conditions, which is relatively new. I'm also the author of the blog, As My Joints Turn, My Autoimmune Soap Opera. And so I've been documenting my family's experiences with COVID, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And I got a lot of questions on my blog about vaccines, and I got a lot of questions 
through Facebook social groups that I'm in. So that's when I sent a text to Tiffany and said, I think we need to talk about this. And I said, well, that's very good timing because I just talked to the production team and we agree. We and I had just sent a message to Dr. Kim and here we are all coming together. So like Kelly, as a person living with these diseases, I have a unique opportunity to also be a person inside these support groups. So I am always in the trenches, always communicating with other people around the world living with these diseases. And, and doing that, we, we see a lot. One thing that I think we need to preface saying is patients talk to patients. We get advice from each other. We pose questions and you're going to get a variety of answers. And when we get a variety of answers, we need a little bit of direction. What's real? What's not real? And as of today, there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of that is being shared. And so we feel very strongly that we want to try to tackle some of those questions and misunderstandings. I know some of the bullet points we're going to talk about today patients making decisions. Do I take the vaccine? Do I not take the vaccine? What is research saying? There's discussions with rheumatologists that aren't necessarily consistent information. Do I take it? Do I not take it? And that's being spread through our communities. There's also what type of vaccines? What are the vaccines? How do I schedule my treatments? Is this going to affect my treatment or my disease? What if I'm in remission? Am I going to have a reactivated flare? So all of these things we're going to talk about today, and we do this in a very conversational way at our organization. We like to say all stakeholders are equal. We like to sit at the table as equal participants. So we have Dr. Kim here to help us with some of the answers, but as people living with the diseases, we're going to have a very heart-to-heart conversation. And we encourage you to try to do that as well with your doctor in the shared decision-making, which is so important as we're talking about vaccines. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. L. Kim. And if you could tell us just a little bit of background, get us started on vaccines generally. Yeah, so vaccines, in my opinion, represent probably one of the most significant advances in modern medicine. And the reason why I say that is a lot of work was done to be able to best understand how to leverage kind of some unique aspects of the immune system in humans that may be different than other organisms like worms or something like that. So one of the things that our immune system is really good at doing is generating what we technically call a memory response. Once you get an infection with a certain organism, let's say it's a cold virus, your body mounts a very strong immune response to it to reduce your viral, the impact of that virus eliminates it. But once it gets eliminated, there's a small subset of the immune response that stays intact. It kind of goes into a dormancy until it sees that organism again. And when it sees that organism again, it clears it much faster. So instead of several you know, days or a week or two, initially it could be you know, a matter of one or two days, the repeat infection. So vaccines leverage this, and they do it through a wide variety of ways. And so when you get vaccinated against something, sometimes you need just one shot. Sometimes you need three with, like, say, hepatitis B, for example. But regardless, what you're doing is you're developing a robust immune response to the vaccine itself with the hope and usually the success of having this residual memory response kind of tucked away in your body until it sees that the actual live organism pathogen again, at which point then it already has at its disposal, you know, pre-assembled responses that can more rapidly and effectively clear the infection. So vaccines really work to be able to generate that specific memory response that is critical for its success. And what about this live versus it's not live. So that's a question that's come up. And it's it's really important for people in our community, I think, to understand as well. Correct. Correct. So basically, vaccines come in four different flavors. And we're not talking about what you're getting vaccinated against. I'm not talking, let's say, flu versus polio. It's actually the the basis of how the mimicked infection comes into your body. All right. So the nice thing about vaccines is that typically it's not the original pathogen. So you usually don't get the disease, right? It's going to be either a component of it or a version of the live pathogen that is substantially slowed or what we call attenuated. So the four different types of vaccines, one is live attenuated. This one is where you have, say, the polio virus itself, but its ability to establish full infection has been, it's basically much of its 
disease causing properties has been eliminated from it. You know, so it could be either genetically engineered or different strains have been developed in the lab. And then that's what you get immunized with. Live attenuated vaccines for the vast majority of the patients listening to this podcast typically are not recommended. There is a risk that these, even though they're attenuated, there's a risk that some of the immunosuppression that we're on can make the actual virus grow much faster and have a greater negative impact on the patient than someone not on immunosuppression. So in general, we recommend that live attenuated vaccines are not administered to people who are immunosuppressed. But fortunately, there are three other classes of vaccines that cover numerous other organisms and pathogens. So one of them is what we call inactivated vaccines. This is kind of where you basically take the pathogen itself and and you just and you kill it. All right. And so as a result, what you're injecting is essentially a carcass of the pathogen. So something like a whole cell pertussis, inactivated polio vaccines. Remember, there's two different polio vaccines. These are basically you have the whole pathogen and you just kill it and you just inject the carcass into the body. Of course, that carcass can't divide, it can't regrow, it can't generate new life, right? You're just responding to the carcass and its parts and then you dispose of it. But for certain vaccines, this is sufficient to be able to generate a response. The third one that's out there is called a subunit vaccine. So this is actually where you take a little part of the pathogen and and you immunize against that. So the most, probably the clearest example of this is the pneumococcal vaccine. There are a whole bunch of little sugars that coat the outside of the pneumococcus bacteria, which are immunogenic, and you can actually generate protective responses if you're immunized against just one of those, or a collection of those sugars. So you immunize a person with those sugars. They are bacterial origin. So some people have a very mild reaction to it. Most people don't, but it is sufficient to generate long-term immunity against pneumococcal bacteria. The last one is a toxoid vaccine. So this is a little bit different because there are certain bacteria like tetanus or diphtheria where the effect of getting infected by them is not actually because of the bacteria itself, but it's what the bacteria produces in terms of a toxin. So these ones are where you basically have the toxin and you you immunize against the toxin itself. So again, it's, it's a little bit like a subunit in the sense that it's a part of the bacteria, but here what you're focusing on is actually a product from the bacteria that's produced that actually directly causes the problem for patients. So most of these vaccines are either parts of the entire pathogen. So as a result, they are harmless when they're injected because they can't do anything, or they're the killed version of the pathogen. And obviously it can't reaminate, all right? It's not gonna be like it's gonna, you know, reassemble itself and come from the dead. That does not happen. So for those three vaccines, safe for people on immunosuppression. Again, as a reminder, live attenuated, generally speaking, we tend to avoid simply because of a theoretical risk that the immunosuppression may not be able to control, even though it's an attenuated version of the pathogen, it may not be able to control that particular organism. So we tend to avoid that. I think a lot of times adults don't get vaccines that often. Like a lot of people avoid even the flu shot annually. I only learned about the live vaccine and biologics when I volunteered to work in Uganda, Africa, and I couldn't get the yellow fever vaccine. And I kept saying, well, what, what's gonna, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if I get the vaccine? And they said, you'll get yellow fever. I'm like, okay, well, let's not take that one then. <laughs> um, let's skip that one. The only reason I was able to actually take the trip is I don't get bit by mosquitoes. I haven't had a mosquito bite in probably 40 years. So I was able to go. I had to sign waivers. The people I was with covered in, in mosquito bites, me, not so much. Another time later, I work in schools and there was a period of time where the kids were getting the, I just, I'm sure this is not the medical term, but the up the nose flu shot. Um, <laughs> That's not a medical term. I don't think it is. I don't think it <laughs> oh. is. I, I would have to check the medical text, but I'm pretty sure up the nose is not in there. And it's, you know, I always picture with a rubber hose, but whatever. Anyway, I remember my doctor saying to me, you might want to be careful on the days that they're giving those flu vaccines because you are on a biologic. So at the time I was itinerant in multiple buildings, I would literally change my days so that I wouldn't be in a building when those shots were being given so that when the kids came in, I wouldn't be around it. But that's the only reason why I knew about the live vaccines. And I think Mm -hmm. because a lot of people, unless, you know, 
you step on something metal, you have to go get your tetanus shot. Not many people go and get their shots regularly once you become an adult. So I, and now there's such a negative connotation in working with autism. I, there's a very large negative connotation to vaccines. So I think people are not as familiar and get most of their information from social media instead of going Mm -hmm. to their doctor. So I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Kelly, because I think in a lot of things that we tackle at our organization, people know what they know <laughs> and they and they go back to what they know and believe what they believe and be- yeah, mm-hmm. and believe what they believe. And so we're, you know, in this this unprecedented time. And now, as you said, I mean, I I had to get vaccine for shingles just based on medication that I was on, but I can't remember the last time that I got one. And now here it is where there's a lot of questions that are going to come up and we're going to dive into some of the things that we've been seeing, some of the questions and the comments that have been submitted to us. Now, one thing that I think is interesting that ties right into this, what you just said, Kelly, people, I mean, you're going back on past history. There are patients, they've made a decision. 100%. They have made their decision. They didn't wait to hear any of the information. They've said, you know, I have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever it is. I'm on prednisone. I'm over age 65. It's too dangerous for me to take the number one thing. There is not enough research. I've heard that over and over. And I have seen a lot of groups really trying to make a strong effort to explain why it's still safe, which we're going to go into. And Dr. Kim will be able to cover. I don't trust it. No way. My rheumatologist said it's too new. That's Kelly, such, did you that's have- such <laughs> bull. That, that drives me nuts. I'll go into an entire tirade about kind of like, you know, you because you brought this up, Tiffany, like people only know what they know. What's more dangerous is when they don't know what they don't know. All right. Mm. Because then all of a sudden they start acting, thinking they have complete knowledge of a particular topic or situation, which is virtually never. Right. So this is a real problem in my mind that there are doctors saying that it's too new. Wait, what are you talking about, doctor? I mean, that is insane to me. We'll go into this later. Well, I we need, even I said we might mute. end up. I need to hit doing mute because whole... I'm going to I'm going to okay. throw some bombs here. <laughs> I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> but we even said that we might have an entire kind of breakout because another thing, in addition to this COVID nineteen and AR arthritis series, we have another segment of our show called Roomy Rounds, and it really gets to the heart of the people living with the diseases and rheumatology professionals talking things out. And I think this is a perfect um, breakout topic to, to go into that. But Kelly, you have had a couple examples as well, things people were saying. Right. And these came about in two different ways. I started, I'm in a social media group for a favorite author and someone posted a random photo of her daughter getting the COVID vaccine shot and said, my daughter is such a rock star. She's a COVID ER nurse. I am so grateful she was able to get the vaccine today. And most people responded positively. I I noticed in that group, they really moderate. You can't be too negative. But what I started seeing was, oh, I have lupus. I'm really hoping I can get it. Oh, I have rheumatoid arthritis. And my rheumatologist told me, no. Are you ready for this one? I'm ready. I'm ready to see Dr. Al's uh, head explode here. It's not FDA approved. And the doctor doesn't want to get sued if something goes wrong. That was a that was one that made me go. I think what? he just went on mute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was ah. another one. You know, okay, so I'm just going <laughs> to briefly tangent here. And this goes into not knowing what you don't know and then acting on that. The biggest, one of the biggest problems we have in my mind within medicine is that we don't have a clear system of checks and balances amongst mm-hmm. physicians. All right. Once you, your board certification somehow confers mastery, right, which is complete and utter crap. I mean, board certified, mm-hmm. it really doesn't mean anything. So... It just drives me nuts when I hear this because there's no system in place that we have other than word of mouth and us trying to convince them, but they end up making the decision. And if they say something like that, which is patently false, right? I mean, it's not FDA approved, but it is under EUA, right? right? Emergency use authorization, which is essentially functionally works the same way. That is a terrible reason. Carry on, Kelly. I apologize. <laughs> the other things that we I started seeing, so there kind of became this little subset conversation between myself and other people. And I had said 
to the person who said, I have lupus. I hope I can get it. I said, well, I checked with my rheumatology office and they said, absolutely go for it. There is no reason. And then somebody else piped in about a certain drug, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But then I was also getting a lot of messages. COVID has impacted my family in the worst ways possible. My father fell and broke his hip in September. About three weeks into October, he contracted COVID while in the rehabilitation hospital. We were told originally that COVID was the least of his problems, that he was actually beating it and doing well. And then suddenly he wasn't. And we lost him three weeks after he was diagnosed. The day after my dad passed, my uncle fell. He also ended up in a rehab setting. Three weeks later, he contracted COVID. And with his severe COPD, he also died from COVID. So when all things came out with the vaccine, now I documented my family's experiences with COVID on my blog. And I had a lot of people send me messages. And I was it was interesting to me that a lot of people emailed me instead of posting publicly because they didn't want to get attacked for their views on vaccines, which I thought was interesting. Now, originally my plan was, you know, and again, I always do what my rheumatologist tells me to do because I trust her completely. But originally I was like, you know, I'm the type of person that when the new iPhone comes out, I wait a year to buy it because (laughs) I don't trust that it's not going to have some problems. So my original thought was I'm going to wait a little bit to get the vaccine. Well, then COVID impacted my family and my mother has, you know, pretty severe COPD and I am here to help her as much as I can. So because of that, I know that I have to get the vaccine, not just to protect myself, but to protect her as well. So taking the vaccine, I checked with my doctor. I'm taking her advice. I am. I was just scheduled into getting it next week. But I think hearing all the things from the public about, oh, you know, all the conspiracy theory things. I think that's something that's taken a really negative impact on this. It's become a political issue, which is a shame because this is really a public health issue. But people's negative views on vaccine, that it causes all these problems down the line. But what I think none of us know is this is a novel virus. We don't know what problems down the line coronavirus might cause. There's so many questions. And when I started seeing those comments in that book club, I I instantly texted who I call my room sisters, who is Tiffany and a bunch of people who are in our organization. I said, can you believe this? And um, that's when Tiffany were like, I think we need to talk about it because I think people are getting a lot of misinformation. One person did say their rheumatologist said no, their general practitioner said yes. I got that too. I saw a comment similar. And I think that's extremely hard when you have doctors that are on polar ends of the spectrum. What do you do? You know, because again, we aren't the experts. We go to the experts. But when their opinions, how many opinions do you have to get before you decide what to do? I'm going to let Dr. Kim respond to that. Dr. Kim, I think you're on mute. Yeah, I had to finish a couple other words. Um, So, (laughs) you know, I I think that one of my, you know, I would say that before COVID, I always practiced within the vacuum of me. And so I only could control what I could do for my patients. And to a certain extent, some of my colleagues here at WashU and, you know, influencing each other. But my circle didn't really extend beyond that. But then COVID really taught me that my role as someone in academics, whether I like it or not, whether I have the bandwidth or not, has to extend much further, you know, at least regionally, in order to be able to get people to make sure they're providing the right options to their patients, all right? And I think one thing that we are running into, and again, this is the third time we bring this theme up, is that, you know, physicians, as because we're humans, we don't know what we don't know sometimes, and that's really dangerous, right? Yes, the technology is new for people. It's not new, though, for science. We've been using liposomal RNA-based delivery systems to get things into mice for decades, right? So this is really, I mean, we make it in our lab. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, only mouse grade, which is saying something, but nevertheless, you know, this is not hard to do. And so the things that they don't understand or don't know all of a sudden become actionable pieces of information to them. And that's not 
what we're supposed to be doing. You know, you know, and again, this goes back to the idea of, well, there needs to be really a kind of a clearinghouse of information to be able to get these out to the physicians. They kind of exist, but at the same time, I think, you know, a lot of this is new and maybe, you know, some there's misunderstanding, you know, it, that's not intentional of what it is. And anytime new technology comes out, you know, we as humans kind of always misunderstand it initially, all right, until it becomes part of the commonplace. So anyway, you know, I would say that we are trying to do regionally here, at least in St. Louis, almost kind of one by one. It's just making sure that everyone understands that this is something we should be offering every rheumatology patient, everyone, okay? Even those on rituximab, and we're going to get into this in a second, this is where there are some significant divisions even in the higher ranks of rheumatology, mm, right? Okay. And so we'll get into that in a second because I think you're right. This is a very specific case. You know, that rituximab and vaccines, there's some very interesting data regarding that in, in the past. I'm actually going to jump to something that, because you just brought it up, Patients are really concerned. And some of these questions and comments that we were getting is, how is the vaccine going to impact me, a rheumatology patient? Am I going to flare? Is it going to activate my disease? Am I going to have a negative impact because I'm taking the vaccine? So right. That's so a big question. Yeah. Which, which has no answer, right? Even if we have data for rheumatology patients, the we, you know, the way we do research is be able to look at, say, a thousand people with rheumatoid arthritis and, say, spondyloarthritis and report at the population level, almost saying those thousand people we're going to treat as one person, right, and report data as that. How can you extract individual risk as a result is really hard, right? Mm -hmm. I can tell you that, let's say, for, uh, you know, 10% of people may get a little bit of arm soreness after the shot. And after my booster shot, I've gotten both shots. I got the Pfizer version. My After the second shot, my left shoulder was sore, right, for about 24 hours. Again, that's reported in about, I think, about 10%. So 10 out of 100 people or 1 out of 10, right? So, you know, this is now based off of probability and factors that we can't predict. You know, literally, we just have to flip a 10-sided coin and just see what happens. That's literally the only way I can kind of extrapolate that type of data to the individual risk. So I totally understand the question, you know, is it going to negatively impact me? The true honest response is most likely not, but I don't know, mm -hmm. right? Where do you lie on that coin? You know, that multiple sided coin and then be able to say, okay, that's actually what's gonna end up happening with you. Yeah, so we're, we're not at that level, nowhere close to that level. So again, this is now just extrapolating from what happens at the broader population, right? And that there is a handful of people that do have adverse events. And so we don't want that to happen. And this is now up to the patient to think, okay, the risk benefit here is that now I can get vaccinated against COVID-19 and I don't really have to worry about it anymore because we do know that COVID-19 affects people with rheumatic diseases a little more in terms of severity than people without rheumatic diseases. And there are certain medications that amplify that effect, all right? So this has been established so we can remove that concern. But on the con would be, okay, I may have a disease flare worst case scenario after I get my shot that may last a month, all right? And for some people, that is no-go. And that is something that the patient has negotiated with themselves, okay? But if they make the argument, well, it just doesn't seem like it makes, it'll be safe or makes sense, I think they're also now missing kind of the bigger picture, you know? And there's also, you know, kind of a, you know, a bias in terms of what they've seen, right? Oh, I've had a whole bunch of friends that got, you know, tested positive for COVID and they're perfectly fine. All right. Again, you, this is a probability thing. We don't fully understand at the individual level whether someone's going to get really sick from it or not. And so they are using kind of a recency bias plus a couple of other biases to be able to generate the statement. It's not going to affect me. And they may be right, but it's not 100% certainty at all. Okay. So... To me, everything is a number game. Everything is about probability. That's not how most people think, though. 
because they're thinking about yes or no, one or zero, act or no acting, right? You know, so this is challenging though because you know, I to be honest, we, you know, the medical data uh, really lives in the world of probabilities that we then say the best option for you is to get it. Nevertheless, this is a highly individual decision. So I would say that for the vast majority, as a concluding statement from this, the vast majority of rheumatic disease patients on, regardless of what medicine you're on, are gonna be fine with the vaccine. The majority I would anticipate, and we are collecting data on this, the majority will not have any disease flares because this is typically not reported with other vaccinations either and that we don't anticipate any difference compared to what was studied in the clinical trials in terms of other adverse events, arm soreness, or even more something more systemic, like a couple days of fever or chills, you know, which has been reported. And I have colleagues that have had that after the booster. So, but again, it's a low percentage. So that's kind of like the best way I can probably describe it. Most likely is nothing's gonna happen that's adverse, most likely. Mm-hmm. I called my school nurse when I found out we could get the shots. And I said, where did you go and get it? And she gave me some advice on where to go. And she said, listen, I'm going to tell you because of your RA, you might want to schedule it on a Friday or a day that you can take off the following day, just in case. And I was like, really? She's like, yeah, that's what we're telling everybody who's going through. You might want to try. And I'm like, well, not everybody can get the vaccine on a Friday. Some people have said, oh, yeah, I felt lousy, but I pushed through it. I know in my building, if I had a fever, I wouldn't be allowed to go in. So I think, you know, again, the side effects, in my opinion, are going to be worth it because I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen how badly COVID impacts a person. What about jumping back into kind of, we're going to bullet point out these questions here Mm -hmm. to kind of wrap up where we're going, then we're going to end with some some research information. So we're talking about reactions. A couple Mm -hmm. of the questions that came in were, well, I've had reactions to biologics mm-hmm. and my doctor and, and I are talking, I've had bad allergic reactions. I said to Remicade, somebody said just in general to other biologics, I guess is, is the point. So they are worried about getting the vaccine because they've had adverse reactions to other medications. So how does that, how would that storyline tie into choosing what's best with the vaccine? Yeah. So I, the fortunate thing about this is that usually these are very unrelated. You know, the components of the vaccine are very different than the component of, say, a biologic like Tanercept, say, Enbrel. And so we don't fully always understand what the person is reacting to. But their likelihood of them having another reaction is going to be low, not zero, but it will be low. Mm-hmm. And I can't give you a number, but I would say it's going to be you know certainly less than 50 percent. So I, I think that this is, again, now based off of the patient's perception of risk and how much risk they are willing to take, right? Right. And so that is, that's something I can't adjust, right? None of us can, right? Everyone has a different relationship with this. And there are some people who are risk takers and some that don't, right? So I think that's where then the patient makes a decision on their own to just say, okay, maybe not, or maybe the real issue is making sure that they don't over represent the risk, right? That's the key thing. The thing is, is that this is kind of that reasoning that oh, I'm definitely going to get a reaction. How do you know, right? You mm-hmm. don't know, but you've already acted on that piece of information, treating something that has absolutely no validity as a fact, and now has become actionable. That's kind of that bridge where we're doing a lot of trying to do a lot of work with patients that feel like this is not something I want to do, we're trying to do a lot of education about and trying to get them to realize that that risk is, you know, they're, they're kind of over-representing that risk in their mind. Yeah. I mean, I went into anaphylaxis shock getting an infusion. And to me, I feel like it's apples and oranges in some ways, which is probably oversimplifying it. If I had more of a reaction to the flu shot, I would probably be a little bit more concerned as opposed to taking my biologic. Because honestly, after that, anaphylaxis, which was a horrific experience, I tried another drug. And so it didn't stop me from doing the biologics because I realized life on a biologic is a lot better than life not on a biologic. So let's circle back to when to take the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So we also had a lot of questions come in to ask, 
you know, should I stop my biologics, my DMARDs, disease-modifying agents, a week before, a day before? My rheumatologist has told me that it, that is important to time the vaccine around my medication. But it seems like, and Kelly, you know, you could probably weigh in on this as well. Even this morning, I was in some of these groups and it was, there's no consent. Everybody's asking patients, mm -hmm. what are you doing? And I had somebody this morning say, I got the vaccine and then I realized I have to take my methotrexate tonight and I didn't even know. So she did cut, get a hold of a rheumatologist, he said, to wait just a, a day because the efficacy of the vaccine and the antibodies and making sure that the strength of them, that was the response. But just the fact that the patient did it, <laughs> did the vaccine without that prior knowledge. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that, Dr. Kim and Kelly, of course, if you have examples as well? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. So, you know, if you look at the data that currently exists about vaccination immunosuppressives, it's really been only flu vaccine and pneumococcus vac vaccine that has been studied. And the drugs that seem to have some effect on how strong the response is going to be is going to be rituximab, methotrexate, and abatacept, which is orencia. You know, the other ones haven't had such a strong attenuation or reduction in the vaccine responses. So let's just take those three, especially methotrexate. So there was data a couple years ago, or maybe last year even, you know, a couple years ago from Korea, where uh, they showed that to generate optimal vaccine responses to influenza immunization, you want to hold methotrexate for two doses and then get it. So that allows the immune system to kind of ramp up, or you get it and then you hold for two doses afterwards, rather, I'm sorry. And that allows the immune system to generate maximal responses. With rituximab, it's even more severe. The rituximab depletes a cell that's critical for vaccine responses, a B cell. And so without B cells, you can't actually make the antibodies that the vaccines rely on to generate part of the memory response. So, you know, there, the timing then there has been recommended and kind of extrapolated from the lymphoma literature is to wait six months after your last rituximab vaccine, right, to maximize responses. Now, I have been talking about maximizing vaccine responses. Right. And without question, people are going to assume, well, I need maximum. The reality is, do you really need maximum in order to get protective responses? That's a question that has not been answered yet for any of these. OK. And so I would say that when we're thinking about timing, this is something that is difficult to achieve largely because of how quickly the vaccine is getting rolled out. And so this is something that I, I think we don't know the full answer. We are actually telling our patients to continue their medications largely because we don't want them to flare and get on steroids, right? Which adds another complicating feature in this entire story. The only situation potentially is rituximab. Now, having said that, it's not like if you get rituximab, you will get zero responses. Again, with influenza, about a quarter of people still generate antibody responses, right? Vaccine responses. So it's not a hundred percent, but it's you know considerably less than you know nearly a hundred percent, right? But what I've been hearing from my lupus patients is that those who are on rituximab are on it because it's really the only drug that's been able to keep them under in remission. So in those cases. You know, I can't tell them to stop and then get the, the get the COVID vaccine. Essentially, what will happen is that we'll just get them the COVID vaccine whenever, and just deal with potentially a reduced vaccine response in the future, and and, and then treat that. We'll we'll handle that separately as long as they are diseases under control. So a lot of this is extrapolated from other diseases. And again, if you go on Twitter, you know, you'll see people like Len Calabrese basically, you know, say and accurately like rituximab is really going to get you zilch of an immune response. And that's probably going to be true for the majority of patients, but still a small handful are going to generate responses. The risk is probably going to be not enhanced regardless, like we mentioned before. So if there is even a little bit of benefit, maybe not maximal with you know, no increase in harm, 
then why again, this is something I'm trying to tell my patients is that if I were in your shoes, I'd probably still get the vaccine and deal with, you know, what happens afterwards. Okay, so we're going to be studying this, but, you know, this is something that I've been recommending. But again, you look on Twitter amongst rheumatologists, you'll see disagreements about this and a lot of questions. We have questions even at the highest levels. Yeah. And I learned about that from a really popular blogger posted it. And she not only has RA, she has diabetes as well. And she posted, I just got off the phone with my doctor. Apparently I can't get the vaccine with my medication. And I think that's when I started seeing in a lot of the patient groups and a lot of the pages where patients are asking each other instead of contacting their doctors. But then I'm also finding patients who contact their doctors are getting a lot of different things going back and forth. So I just think it's such a confusing time and we're in a global pandemic. So this is, this is something that's going on. I'm finding it in people who are in the international groups, as well as in groups here in the United States. So it's really confusing, but I can understand the thought of going off a biologic, which I had done already. It was the most painful six months of my life. And then I had trouble going back on it. Uh, I ended up with shingles and it kept happening every time I went back onto my biologic. So I think it's a scary thing, but I think you just have to follow the advice of your rheumatologist at this point. Yeah. But, I, but again, it really depends if the rheumatologist is, you know, has all the information. Yeah. That's the scary thing. And, um, mm -hmm. but what, what should patients do in that situation? Where do they turn? Mm -hmm. I yeah. guess that's this the, is, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is, Again, we're we're identifying so many holes in our healthcare infrastructure because of COVID, both systemic, but at the policy level, but also in terms of even getting information out to physicians and patients in a very effective way that is trusted. All right, so that's the other aspect too, right? Is that most patients will trust the rheumatologist. So it's really on, the onus is on the rheumatologist, but if the rheumatologist you know, is being misinformed unintentionally, then that, you know, makes the problem even worse. So again, this is something we haven't really tackled before, but it's become very obvious this past year that we need to do a better job of disseminating information that is actionable, right? It's one thing just to get an email from the ACR ULAR saying, okay, but you know, is that really actionable? It's not like the recipient actually may not even read the email, right? <laughs> they may just delete it. Or there's just like, oh, you know, they'll have their own preconceived notions about whether to give it or not. So I don't know. I think, again, we're just, we have so much work to do, you know, in, in at least in the American healthcare system and trying to rapidly roll out new ideas that need to be executed rapidly. So, so finding information off of social media, even when Tiffany said patients going back and forth asking, that to me makes me nervous. And even when I was in that group and I said, hey guys, you know what? I have a nonprofit and we talk about a lot of this. Why don't you come to this page where you can get some like solid advice and solid ways to move forward? And the one person said, you know, what do I do if I have two doctors telling me two different things? And then, you know, I think you have to figure out, ask them where they're getting their, the basis of that recommendation from. And if it's just, you know, the FDA hasn't approved it, you know, that might not be a good enough answer when you talk to your other doctor who said, based on all the facts and everything that you just said, Al, I mean, it has to be based on more than just, I don't want to get sued. Okay. And so since there isn't really a place with data, I guess right now for patients, because literally the questions are coming in with their jack inhibitor, they're naming their medication and they're hearing from each other, the different messages that their doctor is telling them, or they're seeing what the other patients are saying. And so we're getting comments like, well, I heard, <laughs> I heard that you are not supposed to take DMARDs for one week before. I heard that you're supposed to wait. And so it's just, there's so much. And I, and I don't know if it's medication specific or it's just, there's not enough data for us to Yeah, it's a, a little say. bit of both, a little bit of both. Like, so methotrexate and rituximab and like rituximab, you definitely, the majority of people don't mount good responses at all but it's still 25% do mount responses. And so, you know, saying that with our lupus patients who rely on rituximab to control disease activity, they've already made the decision to continue their rituximab and get the COVID vaccine because they don't see what they're losing if they get the vaccine, all right? Even if, and they may get lucky and still develop an adequate response to it. 
Although, you know, the expectation is that for at least three quarters of them, maybe more, the response is going to be pretty flat. Okay. And there were, and so in in keeping with that whole line of discussion, there Mm -hmm. were a few people who I think because they're getting wind of these conversations, they're generalizing into statements like, I was told that we, as a person living with Mm -hmm. these diseases, and they did not specify we as having these diseases versus we as people on immunosuppressant drugs, which is Mm -hmm. two different things. I was told that we are likely to have reduced antibody responses to immune suppression so the vaccine may not do much for me. Uh, that's a yeah. common thread that I'm seeing. Right. And so, again, I think the nuance here is that they may have reduced antibodies, which is probably not going to be true for most of the medications. But is the reduced antibodies going to be so much that they lose protection? Mm-hmm. Right. That is not clear. All right. So, again, they are acting based off of a potential scenario, which is totally unclear whether it's going to exist or not, right? Okay. And so that's something I, you know, so again, we've been very consistent here at WASH. She is saying that let's just get the vaccine. You know, we'll work out details later if you need a booster in a year or so or something like that. I mean, I'm just making that up. Mm-hmm. I don't know what will happen, but, you know, this is something we've been inundated with also. And again, we don't have very clear answers. And this now goes into kind of how the rheumatologist perceives the risk also, right? As, right. You know, the need to have that person get vaccinated, even though it may get you not, you know, suboptimal, right? I'm not going to say substandard. That's different. Suboptimal responses. They, 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 that still may be standard, though. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good segue into talk a little bit about what is happening. So there's so much that we don't know, but I know that that Dr. Kim, you and and your colleagues at Wash at Washington, I say Wash you because I live in St. Louis, so yeah, Washington you say University. Wash you. It's branding, man. It's branding. Just say it, Dr. Al, Dr. Allen, Wash you. Yeah. <laughs> these these abbreviations. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what is happening? Even though it's right. early stages, there mm-hmm. is research. There's research happening. So right. tell us a little bit. So in response to the fact that we don't know crap about anything here, <laughs> <laughs> we rapidly decided to start the study called COVID-19 Vaccine Responses in Patients with Autoimmune Disease. It's I've gave, given it the clumsy acronym of COVIRAPAD. Um, okay. Yeah, there's a couple. Yeah. Anyway, I the study is main purpose is to examine the quantity of response, how big of an immune response you generate to the vaccine, but also the quality of response, you know, that which may be independent of how big the response is made, but whether or not the response that you do make is going to be theoretically protective. And then the third part of that is going to be examining the safety of that. We do have some other things we're going to be looking at kind of secondarily. One thing that we're really excited to look at is the evolution of the vaccine response over time and how immunosuppression changes that compared to those not on immunosuppression. Mm. You know, so we have a companion study being led by Dr. Rachel Presti, who's really one of our advocates for COVID-19 vaccination here at WashU, probably the leading one. You know, so she's spearheading that and we're working with a extraordinary immunologist named Ali Elabedi, who actually studied this exact same question for flu in healthy oh, people. Okay. And so he published that back in August. And so we're going to be able to leverage his platform in order to be able to analyze over time how the response evolves, kind of coupled within the primary quality question is whether or not patients on immunosuppressive medications will generate adequate responses to the new mutant strains that are coming out the UK strain, the South African strain. The theory is that you should be able to be protected, you know, if you're not on immunosuppressives. The changes to those strains in the spike protein, which is the protein that you're generating immune responses to in the vaccines, are pretty subtle. And generally, most people will develop multiple responses to multiple parts of the protein, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just one little part. And if that part changes, then you're screwed. You actually develop multiple responses across the protein. 
there is a theoretical risk that people on immunosuppression may have this process get be blunted a little bit. So that's one thing we're very interested in looking over time. And this is going to be based off of more laboratory type of studies is to be able to, in our little culture system, we're working with a couple virologists named Sean Whelan, who's the chair of our microbiology department here, and also someone in our genetics department named Willie Busher, who've generated a really high, a nice high throughput approach to be able to test multiple mutant strains of SARS-CoV-2 within the culture dish and see whether or not someone's antibodies that they produced can block all of them or none of them or just some of them. So we're going to be able to segregate this based off of disease, based off of the type of medicine. And if we get, you know, a sample size large enough, we can do it for both. You know, if a rheumatoid arthritis patient on TOFA, TOFA sitting in Borzelgians versus a lupus patient on Cellcept, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we get numbers big enough, we may be able to completely identify where the risks are in this massive matrix of variables, right? But the first things first is that we're going to be focusing on mostly medication classes. Okay. Yeah, we've already, so we've been working on not just within rheumatology at WashU, but also with our inflammatory bowel disease colleagues, neurology colleagues who see people with like, say, multiple sclerosis and are a lot of B cell depleting agents, our uveitis teams here. And and also our dermatology teams who treat things like psoriasis, you know, other autoimmune skin conditions in order to kind of just build up the sample size quick, more quickly. So we probably already have enrolled and collected samples over time on nearly 100 people. And so these are going to be WashU or Barnes Jewish Hospital faculty and staff because it got rolled out to these people first. And a small subset of them have autoimmune diseases. So we hopefully will be able to report some early results from that within a month. That's Mm. kind of one of our aim. Yeah. And then kind of a much more complete story, maybe as early as the summer. A lot of it depends on, you know, this, uh, how many people we are able to capture after the, you know, with immunization. On top of this, though, too, is that we're working with multiple groups internationally to try to homogenize our study protocols so that we can collect samples there and analyze them here. So, yeah. So UCSF, you know, we already have a verbal agreement in place and we're going to be actually writing some grant proposals with them regarding this. We're talking to some people at University of Arizona. I think NYU has their own separate effort that they're doing. We've talked to a group from Italy that's interested. There may be a couple groups in South Korea. Maybe Australia, Philip Robinson, who you may know, some of the people may know on Twitter, is an um, uh, extraordinary rheumatologist and helped with Genius Yazdani lead the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. You know, I've sent him the protocol to see whether or not kind of at the, you know, institute, you know, kind of almost at the national level, they can try to get something facilitated. And so we can have some sort of agreement with them too. Again, the more partners we have, the more we can canvas the faster we're going to be able to get actionable results. So this is kind of, it's been been a bit of a goat rodeo might be the other way to describe <laughs> it, right? But it's been fascinating to me trying to learn how to rapidly organize teams and then get them to execute ideas really quickly. I've learned a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes already, <laughs> you know, about how this is done. <laughs> but it's it's been I mean, it's been it's been a great experience. I mean, the general response in the rheumatology community in particular has been so positive. So hopefully we'll be able to get a ton of partners and be really able to analyze this or get actionable answers quickly. Yeah, there was one question I wanted to circle back on. There were a few questions on there's different vaccines out there. Mm-hmm. Which one do I choose? And, you know, I wanted you to just weigh in a little bit on that, Dr. Kim. We'll just say that most people aren't going to have a choice. <laughs> but fortunately, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are very similar. If, you know, the spike protein that it encodes is identical. There have been a couple modifications to make it actually more immunogenic to promote a stronger vaccine response. And both of them have those changes in there. On top of that, they also have some modifications that are identical that helps increase the stability of RNA. RNA is a very unstable molecule in our body. 
uh, so unstable that without additional changes to improve its stability, it may not work. So these changes, interestingly enough, so there was a theoretical risk very early on that lupus patients may be worse off with this vaccine than other diseases, largely because lupus patients are very responsive to RNA. RNA tends to trigger pathways in, in lupus that drive flares if in the wrong compartment. But what's interesting, and this is not was not done intentionally, it was just purely for stability reasons, the stability changes actually makes this RNA less inflammatory, actually substantially less inflammatory. So now I'm not concerned at all for lupus patients about any risk. So wow. of, of flaring, yeah. I mean, the changes are actually, it's, it's just kind of like dumb luck almost mm-hmm. that, it, you know, it, that it, you know, at least for the lupus patient that this, these RNA vaccines, despite their theoretical risk of triggering flares, is probably not going to be realized due to the chemical changes of the RNA. Wow. I'm yeah. glad that I circled back and asked that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this has changed our theme, you know, from what we said, we're talking to some of our patients in kind of like early to mid-December. And then around the holidays, we realized that, you know, this is actually not a risk that's probably going to be realized. And now we're telling all our lupus patients, you know, you if you get selected, you know, I would strongly recommend getting it. That's really promising. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I can just say as an organization that's international on our end, and also we thrive on making, we call it the global network, you know, so mm-hmm. we're always making friends with other organizations and, and because it, it, it matters. You know, you bring more people together, you're going to have more robust results. But I can tell you from our end, I mean, we plan on collecting more and more patients to sign up and say, yes, I would, if the opportunity is there, you, you know, I am there to, to tell you my story. I am there. So keep that in mind too, because we're already, I know with um, Forward National Data Bank for Rheumatic Diseases, they are housing, building and housing our AI arthritis data bank. And so yes. that's one of the things that I know we're going to be talking about and working together on yeah. um, getting and information we, as well. Yeah, and we hope to deposit our data into Ford too. You know, we're oh, still, well. yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. We we're we're a little bit behind on the regulatory aspects of doing that from the IRB, uh, but we have been a little busy. So once we kind of get through the crush <laughs> yeah. of getting this. Goat rodeos are very intense, so I can understand you're very. I, busy. I, I, they 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 look like they are. Yeah. Um. So, <laughs> um. But we do have intentions to be able to deposit because we are also collecting some patient reported outcomes, mm-hmm. kind of at a you know kind of a global general level. So we want to be able to make sure that someone who has expertise in analyzing those type of data has the opportunity to use the data we've collected as we're trying to get all their outcomes published. So oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. Well, and you know that I don't know the the rollout of the the study, but as your patient as well, you know I'll sign up if if need be. But because I nope. I am I didn't even have to coerce you. you know, no, the IRB IR can be very happy about that. <laughs> I'm in. You had free will in this decision. Nope. Yep. I'm more than happy to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Kelly, did you have anything else to add? You know, hearing not only the patient perspective, but the rheumatologist perspective, I think it's important because I think, again, so much misinformation. I think social media is a blessing and a curse in many ways. It gives you, it opens the doors to finding lots of things. I mean, I wouldn't be a co-founder of this nonprofit if it wasn't for social media. But I also, I see a lot of information that's not correct and I fall into it too, but you have to do your, you have to do some research if you want to get the facts. Again, I tend to fall on facts and science as opposed to what Sally from Peoria said that her doctor's brother's rheumatologist said to them. So I think, you know, getting facts out to patients is important. So I think sharing this is going to be a good thing, hopefully, to get people to know where to go to find the answer to these questions. So I think as we're closing this up here, Dr. Kim, would you like to give a little bit of an overview as just as far as the takeaway message of, do I take this? Do I not take this? (laughs) Kind of our our, our wrap up theme here. Right. So in the vacuum of facts that specifically that do not exist about the relationship between rheumatic diseases and COVID-19 vaccination, we fortunately can extrapolate from 
other vaccines that we commonly give to rheumatic disease patients. And from that experience, we know that the vast majority of people, regardless of immunosuppression, are going to respond positively to the vaccine. In other words, they'll mount vigorous back vaccine responses with little issues with safety or flares. This, again, is extrapolating from other vaccines like flu and pneumonia. There are a couple very specific circumstances where this may not be 100% true. We've talked about rituximab being a big one, methotrexate to a lesser extent, and abatacept also to even a lesser extent. But again, the vast majority of people who are out there are going to be able to tolerate the vaccine with confidence that they'll get protective effects. So this is largely driven our own specific campaign for all rheumatic disease patients to at least entertain and better yet get the vaccinations. And so, you know, this is ultimately going to be trying to reduce any severe COVID issues that they may encounter if they happen to contract the infection. Okay. Thank you for that. As far as after the vaccine, there have been questions that were submitted, but as far as would I still be able to transmit the virus? And there is information on websites like the CDC, John Hopkins, that talks about the uncertainty, I guess, of we don't know <laughs> with how long mm -hmm. the vaccine is. So they are recommending to still wear masks and protect yourself. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, things may change. And so Tony Fauci spoke virtually to WashU people a couple weeks ago, and he very explicitly stated that if we can get 70 to 80% of the U.S. population vaccinated, then the public health measures that are in place, we can more or less, we can start relaxing them substantially. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. And then I know, Kelly, you also had a question on how long the vaccine would last? Yeah, the one question that I got is, is this going to be a one and done vaccine or is this going to be yearly like the flu? And if it is yearly, is it still going to be a two shot or is it going to be a one shot booster? That's the question that I got. Both great questions. I would have to talk to Rachel Presti and see if she actually knows any of that. And I could follow up and that could go on the website in terms of if the vaccine needs to change, we need to get revaccinated. The reason why flu revaccination occurs is that there's the, the virus mutates so quickly and so dramatically that essentially it looks like a brand new virus, right? And so flu just, that's just the way it operates. SARS-CoV-2 doesn't have nearly the level of change, all right? At least we don't think so. And so as a result, I think we originally have thought that, you know, probably could be just a one and done type of thing. If we do need every few years a booster or kind of, you know, there are new strains identified, do we need one or two shots? I, I don't have data to support this, but one of my suspicions is whether or not the booster shot dosing may need to change because, you know, there is, you know, 10% of people that are getting ill from it, you know, temp, you know, for a brief period of time. And so that, you know, that tells me that they're generating crazy immune responses to it. And so do we need to generate that level of immune response after the second shot? I don't know. I'm not a vaccinologist, mm -hmm. but there are people thinking about these type of things. So once a protocol is established, it tends to stick, right? So if we happen to need another round of shots, it's probably going to be a two-round shot thing again. But I will tell you that making these mRNA vaccines is really easy. And there is a th potential that you could actually bundle multiple vaccines into the same injection, right? Because they can load mRNA for flu, for SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-3, whatever, right? right? Into the same packaging uh -huh. and you will respond to all three or four even, you know, if there's four vaccines in there with that shot. So again, that's how easy these vaccines are to make compared to prior versions of vaccines. Well, I think that's important for patients to know too, because people were so concerned about why did it roll out so fast? It has to be a conspiracy. But I think knowing that, that this was in place for other things and it was just able to be adapted so quickly, but you know, there's always those people who are just very suspicious. And I hope that, I think that it, it's gonna waylay a lot of fears. Yeah, this, mm -hmm. this discussion. Yep. Yep. Well, I really appreciate everybody coming together here and talking because, you know, it, it's not going to do any good either if we have rheumatologists talking to rheumatologists and patients talking exactly. to patients and nobody meeting in the middle to get some of this information out. So I just want to thank you, Dr. Al Kim. And what do we Dr. Dr. Al Dr. Al. You. And wash you. And um, we have two new medical terms up the nose and goat rodeo. 
I right. think they'll be yes. added. Yeah. They'll be added moving forward. Yeah. As, um, yeah. Clinical terms. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So I want to thank everybody also for tuning in. And we will, just because the show ends, the conversation never has to end at our organization. So if you have additional questions, you can uh, email us at podcast at AIarthritis.org. We will be updating our AIarthritis.org backslash COVID-19 page with more information as well. And we'll certainly update on any information that, that Dr. Kim sends us on research that they're doing or that we, we learn about from around the world. Also, if you are a person living with these diseases or parent of a juvenile, go to AIarthritisvoices.org and sign up to join our online community space where we'll talk a little bit more about COVID and all kinds of other topics and projects that we're working on. Finally, if you love the show, please give us a rating and you can subscribe anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So thank you all so very, very much. And I just want to thank especially Dr. Kim and a big thank you, Kelly. I always enjoy co-hosting with you because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events. 